Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today has a passion for wine and for life, and his story is one that he is sharing with us today. He's Ernie Weir, also known as Don Ernesto, who along with his wife, Irit, are the owners and operators of Hagafen Cellars, located in the Napa Valley in the heart of California's premier wine grape region. Hagafen was founded in 1979, becoming the first kosher winery in California. It's a unique vineyard and winery, and we're about to find out why. For everything about Hagafen Cellars, go to Hagafen.com, and you can follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Ernie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. What brought you out to such a great area, the Napa Valley? Well, I had grown up in Los Angeles, and I had heard about winemaking, and I had slightly pursued it, but not really very seriously until I then decided, oh, well, I'm going to move to either Napa or Sonoma, and and then eventually I chose Napa. And I knew that there was an opportunity in Napa, or lots of opportunity. I knew there was a a local uh, community college where I could study the craft a bit, as I needed to, because I didn't have a a background in it. And uh, I had a feeling, based on what was going on in society with wine consumption, that there was going to be an opportunity for the future. So I was young enough and, and naive enough that I took that chance to relocate from Los Angeles to Northern California. It's an interesting comment you just made because many of my guests always talk about how had they known what they know now, they wouldn't have necessarily have done what they did then. But it's a good thing that they did what they did then because they were young and quote-unquote foolish or whatever the word is. But it obviously allowed a lot of people, including you, to follow your dream. Well, yes, so certainly. When you're young and you have less less responsibility, it's easier to make a life change like that. And I had grown up in Los Angeles, and I had finished UCLA, and I had decided that I don't think I really want to wait in line and be in traffic, and I want to see if I can pursue something that would be fulfilling and also would allow me to live in a smaller location, but but still not be too remote. So both of these areas that I mentioned, Napa Sonoma, are wonderful because they're within an hour of the major area, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, but they're still remote enough that they have a more rural lifestyle, and that I was looking for that too. And it's another world altogether, isn't it? And it's another world, and it's a beautiful world. It has its difficulties too, and it has it's not always been straight up the trajectory. But uh, and we've of late, if you've if you've heard with fires and earthquakes and all, we've we've all suffered here. But it's still very pleasant, and there's no smog, and uh, the traffic is light, and uh, it's very pleasant. It's yeah. a good place to raise my kids, too. Excellent. Both Gina and I have been out there. My wife, Gina, and I have been out there, and it's a lovely area, number one. And your particular Hagafen Cellars is wonderful. Let's talk about that, how you decided on the name, and then we'll expand from there. Well, it's, <laughs> so I had, been, uh, I had already been in Napa for a number of years, because I came here in the early 70s. And while I was already working for a large winery, a major winery, where I was learning really well, and I had asked them if I could return to university, and so I did go back and work part-time and, and studied part-time at UC Davis to get my degree in viticulture and enology. And while I was doing that, I was thinking, what can I specifically do? What, what's interesting for me, and what can I contribute to the wine community? And so I came up with this idea of Hagafen Cellars, and from the beginning I thought, well, I know the Jewish community pretty well, and I think that there's going to be a need and a calling for an improved, improved wines and better quality. And so in Napa, that's 
like the best place to be just about, or again, I'll say Napa and Sonoma, but anyway, these Northern California wine communities are really wonderful for growing grapes and making wine. And I put all this together in my brain and then I thought, okay, why not? Let's see what we can do. And you did it. But you made a decision to make it a kosher winery. What was the genesis of that? Yeah, so I made that decision because I I thought, well, how do you address the notion that all these other ethnic groups have such great pride in their wineries and their winemakers, and how do we address that in in, in amongst the Jews? And so, well, there isn't something called there. There are Italian wines and there are Italian American winemakers. But with Jews, it was a little different, so I decided, well, let's see what would happen if I wanted to make it kosher. I, 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 it's, it's not part of my lifestyle, kashrut, on a daily basis, but I am respectful of it. And I thought, let's see what, if there's any impediments to it or, or anything that's going to really stand in my way to, for me to achieve my goal of producing quality wine, high quality, premium quality, whatever you'd like, or Napa quality wine that's also kosher. And so I re- researched that and figured out there's nothing really in, in the kashrut which prohibits that from happening. So we went for it. And we started quite small in 1979 and then in 1980, a little bit more. And then eventually we grew and grew like like successful businesses do. And we're, we're still not a large enterprise, but we are independent now. We have our own winery and our own vineyards, and we're more self-sufficient than we certainly were at the very beginning. And your wines are, even though it's a small operation, relatively speaking, compared to some of the other wineries in Napa and Sonoma, your wine makes it around the world and also into the White House. Well, we've been, very, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. We've been very successful in penetrating or influencing or getting into different marketplaces around the world. It's very competitive. Some are easier to enter and some are very, very difficult. And uh, then we were fortunate enough to establish a, a contact with the uh, wine advisor to then Governor Reagan. That would have been in about nine, in the late 70s. And then when Governor Reagan became President Reagan, that same person carried their, uh, continued to give wine advice to Governor Reagan and, uh, uh, to President Reagan, excuse me. And then that just continued for decades and has continued to this day. So that we're not the only, but we are the predominant uh, wine that gets into the White House that when they have a need for, a uh, wine that's kosher, and when they are honoring, who might it be, somebody, but oftentimes a dignitary, an Israeli dignitary, or when they have the, uh, they've had these events a few times called Jewish American Cultural Day, Heritage Day or something, where they honor wonderful people, and we've had our wine at those two on several occasions. So that's, it's been great for us. We're very proud of it, too. These great people are tasting our wine also. Well, yes, yeah, spreads the word. When you made the decision to make it a kosher wine, did you ever think of bifurcating that? So, for example, out of the same winery, you would have half the inventory be kosher and half the inventory not be kosher, or is it a total commitment to making it all kosher? It's pretty much a commitment, and for us, it just was much, much simpler to make everything to the standard, which is kosher for Passover, and then when people come to visit us, for those to whom this is interesting... We're happy to discuss it. And to those to whom it is meaningless, we don't even mention it or it's, it's not important. So uh, we've been able to bridge the gap and have the, uh, the, the fact that the wine is kosher be a value add. Sure, because the true test of your wine is not whether it's kosher or not, but whether it's good or not. 
whether it's good, whether it's accepted or not, whether people come and enjoy it, whether it's able to be sold, whether people uh, buy it again, you know, all those kinds of things, and and also whether or not other winemakers, wineries, copy what we've done. And have they? And there have been a few, uh-huh. yes, okay. over the course of time. So I forget exactly how that say, saying goes, but something like... Uh, Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, perhaps? Thank you very much. Exactly. <laughs> thank you. I, I have to uh, plead partiality to sparkling wine, and there's something about it that just is very joyful and celebratory whenever you have it, even if you're not celebrating something. It's just a fun experience because some wines, they can be wonderful, but they're not necessarily fun to you. But somehow, sparkling wine always does. Yes, that's true. Well, so you led me into a nice topic, which is that for 24 years, early in my career, I worked here for Domaine Chandon, which was an American subsidiary of Moet Chandon from Epernay, France. And their specialty, of course, is the production of champagne in France and what is known as sparkling wine in California, in Napa. So I worked there, learned the craft there, and uh, in 1997, we began to produce our own sparkling wines. So we produce, usually not every year, but every three or four years, we produce one or two sparkling wine blends. The blends are typically made from Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. and We've been very successful with those, and as you said, they're very special, and people enjoy them. And we have them available from our website, of course, as you mentioned earlier, but we also have them available for tasting in our tasting room in Napa. And just for the record, and as, and this is really a non-disclaimer disclaimer because, A, you're not paying me for this uh, conversation, and B, we are members of your wine club, and part of that order that we always put in is for sparkling wine. Again, my weakness, so ah, there you ah, have it. Very nice. But uh, tell us a little bit about the club itself, because a lot of wineries are doing this, but each winery has a little different approach to it. What is yours? Well, a wine club is a very unique and interesting, and, and should be very interesting and beneficial for both parties. It's like an affinity club, like maybe a um, uh, frequent flyer mileage, but we don't. There's no points involved in it. But it's a way that the consumer can have direct contact with the winery, receive regular shipments. Usually, in our case, they're four times a year. We have several clubs, but each one of them is a four time a year club. And you get the wines typically before they're released to the general public, and they're shipped directly to your door, unless you want to pick them up personally, which you may. And uh, as an affinity or loyal member, there is a, a, a nice discount for you and some other benefits of, of tasting free at the winery and some other information that's infre- interesting about wine and recipes included. And so it's, it's, it's generally a, a, a place where people, uh, I mean, a club or, or an organization that people join and remain for a long time because they realize it's a nice benefit. When you cost anything to join, it, the only thing you're paying for would be the wine when it's shipped to you. When you ship it out, and I guess that's the the interesting thing to me, is I am assuming you can ship anywhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, anywhere in the United States and perhaps even globally, because we have listeners from all over. So I'm curious, is how far can you ship out to? We can ship currently everywhere except Utah and Mississippi. Uh, Every state has its own rules, but we can ship to all the other states. We've stopped shipping pretty much to consumers outside of of the United States because 
We couldn't ship to Canada, but it's kind of difficult. Sometimes it clears the customs, sometimes it doesn't. So customers that live in Canada often know how to buy buy and have the wine shipped to the U.S. somewhere along the border. And customers from the South, we of course, we have many from Mexico or Panama or, or elsewhere. They, they also know how to have the wine shipped to someplace in Florida or somewhere convenient for them. So we don't ship any longer anywhere other than the U.S., but that's that's a big market. There's a lot of people. We have more than a 1,000 people who are participants. Yeah, pretty good. How did you convince your wife to go along with this project of yours, this passion of yours, when you first started out? <laughs> <laughs> I like your laugh. <laughs> well, it wasn't so hard to convince her, but, you know, like like I was an urbanite from Los Angeles. My wife was an urbanite from Tel Aviv. And then when she and her family moved to Los Angeles, and then when I met her and she moved to Northern California, but she had already been living in Berkeley in Northern California. So, but coming to Napa was a little bit different because it was going to be a smaller town. Took her a few years, let's say, to get used to it, but then eventually she appreciated and loved it, and everyone loves to come visit us because they're coming out to the farm or out to the ranch, and it's, a, you know, from L.A., all of our people come, and it's great fun because we grow lots of vegetables and lots of fruits, and we have chickens. And yes, the eggs. Yeah, so, you know, people like the eggs. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, uh, perhaps some olive oil, too. And olive oil, too. Yeah, that's true. That's great. Because it almost sounds too idyllic, do you ever leave the area to go to other states? Or are you, once yeah. you're there, you stay yeah. there? No, sure. You know, I mean, it's work. It's not continuous work, but it's seasonally, it's a lot of work. And prior to the pandemic, for sure, we would be away for a month here or a few weeks there or things like that, or even even longer periods sometimes. So I'm looking forward to when we can do that again. I, I know which seasons I need to be here and which seasons I don't. And I have good people. When and you can trust now them. with communication as good, as good as it is, you know, we talk, you know, it's easier to talk to each other too. So when you decided to go in this direction, you were taking a chance clearly because there are so many tangibles when it comes to growing wine, bottling wine, selling wine, tasting wine, etc. There are so many variables that can go wrong. And yeah. did any of those go in the initial stages when you first started out, did any of those variables go sideways? Well, that would be hard for me to remember all the way, but I, I have survived. <laughs> yes, exactly. Years. I just figured there might be one or two things you might remember from the distant wine uh, pass that struck you as not insurmountable, but that you didn't expect, and all of a sudden something happened. Well, th this is a this is a pastime business vocation that requires a lot of attention and requires a lot of assets that you have to accumulate. And so when you start, it's hard because you don't have all those things. But gradually, you have to accumulate the grape resources, the equipment to process, which is expensive, and you only use a few months of the year, and then the customer base, and then how to deal with it. So it really is a is like a multidisciplinary skill. Um, I had some background in some of all of those things, but then I had to learn the other things. And and it, I think that the best thing going for us here is that we're pretty cooperative one with the other. I mean, wineries with wineries and vineyards and so on. So if you don't have exactly the information or the or or the tool, you can typically you can borrow it. So I can't really think of you know, something I really want to discuss, let's say, that, that went wrong. But I'm, I'm sure things along the way, you know, most recently, with, as I mentioned earlier, with the fires and the earthquakes and all these, these difficulties that 
Um, of course, we've had economic downturns up and down and droughts over the course of 40 years a few times. And so each time you have to learn to go with it. As I would say, if grape growing was that impossible here, we wouldn't all be continuing to do this. hundred and you know, It's been going on for, what, 150 years or something. So it's difficult some years, but most of the time it's not that difficult. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, too, was we see the increasing consolidation of various industries, the corporatization of the economy. And yet, even in Napa Valley, you have independent growers and independent wineries. Do you see that for the future? Are you optimistic about it staying that way? Or at least a mix of the two? Well, a mix of the two. It is is not inexpensive. It's quite expensive to get involved. And you know, many of us are thankful that we got involved when we did because we might not be able to afford it to do it now. But the strength here is this seems to be this blend of these very large corporations, but then they, they're a few by comparison. You know, I don't I don't know exactly what the number is, but they they contribute a large volume. But in terms of the people, the, the number of wineries here, by far there are more small wineries than there are large wineries. And so those are generally family-owned. I'm a member of an organization called the Napa Valley Vintners, and its strength is both, is this 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 mixture of the large corporations and the family-owned. And um, it's quite a good organization because it doesn't, it, it's, it's fair. It doesn't favor one over the other. And we have uh, multiple opportunities to present our wines to judges and at public tastings and these things and it, that's it's quite fair for all of us and the the amount of effort here in marketing is is required is huge and yet we have this organization that we all cooperate in and, and uh, we're doing pretty well with that it has been tough of late because we can't go out into the public very easily right so it's getting better in the last month or two you, we can clearly see that it's getting better it's good to see there's peaceful coexistence between those two different kinds of businesses. Yes, it's really it's really inspiring. And um, while we do compete with each other, we're we're quite friendly about it. That's great. Tell us about your alter ego, Don Ernesto. Well, let's say uh, let's see. Um, <laughs> Is that a bit of whimsy, Ernie? There's a bit of whimsy there, but. Um, you know, uh, in Spanish, uh, giving someone the name Don or Doña is a is a, some a position of honor, and uh, I've kind of grown into this this name because I was called this name Don Ernesto when I was much younger, and I felt awkward with it. But as I'm achieving <clears throat> middle and later age, <laughs> you're it seems to make a little bit more sense. And so some people call me that. So when we when the name clicked, and and other people here heard it. You know, the, the English-speaking population heard and said, well, that's kind of cute and funny. So then we had someone design some different labels for us, and we have a, another series of wines with Don Ernesto that are a little, if you will, less serious than Cabernet and Chardonnay and those wines. And um, it's fun for everyone, and I have people who call me Don Ernie. Even. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. Does it pay to have a sense of humor when you're running a, a winery? <laughs> well, I think with anything you do, it pays to have a sense of humor. Yeah, because, I uh, agree. You know, life is, it can be kind of bite you if you don't have enough uh, humor in it. So exactly, um, it, it's really helpful here, and so um, you got to roll with it. You got to roll, roll with, with it. A lot of punches. Yeah. The important question, which I always like to say for towards the end. How did you decide on the name Hagafen Cellars? 
Well, Hagafen, if you know, or as other people might might know, is the last word of the Jewish prayer that is said when blessing wine, before you drink the wine, and it means the grapevine. So as I heard a lot of other people in other European languages talk about la vigna or la van or, or different expressions of uh, appreciation for the grapevine, I thought, well, this would be a nice one, and, and uh, I, it had a ring to it. And then a wine cellar, of course, is a wine cellar, and we don't really have a cellar, though we have a above-ground winery. But if I had a if I had a hill that I could carve into, I'd I'd build a cellar in there. But it's still called Hagafen Cellar, so yes, there yes. you go. So that's the name we started with, right. and Duck. And so we have three we have three principal brands that we work with, and the main brand is Hagafen Cellars, and we have a reserve brand that we call Pre, um, a P R I X. And then we have the Don Ernesto series of wines. So we right. have sort of three lines of, of wines. Tell us a little bit about your family background. What, what brought you to L.A.? And, and you said you grew up there, or at least you went to, to school there. Yeah. No, I, I grew up in L.A. My parents had migrated there from New York, from the east. They were both uh, Holocaust immigrants from refugees from Central Europe, from Germany. And uh, they made it to the, to the eastern shores in the late 30s. And then came to California about 10 years later, and then I was born in 1950. And so I grew up in suburban Los Angeles, and and uh, life was good. You know, it was, it was the 50s. It was uh, an unusually quiet time, but after the shock of what had happened to the world in the 30s and 40s, it was much more peaceful, and uh, we grew up safe, and then I and my older brother... Um, well, he didn't leave Los Angeles. I was the one who decided. I'm actually the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said in the beginning, you said it was, you were, you were looking at the traffic and you were looking at all those other things that come with the big city. And you said, you know, I think I could do better somewhere else. Yeah. You know, I, I think I remember at, at UCLA waiting in line for everything. And I thought, this life, this life's got to be different. It doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> well, did you have the support? Now, we talked about your wife, but did you have the support of the rest of your family when you made that decision to move up north? That's nice. You know, that's nice of you to say that uh, or ask that. Um, yes and no. They thought it was a little bit unusual, but then they realized that, you know, that the kid wants to go do something that's meaningful to him. So, you know, after all, isn't that what, a, what parents want for their kids? Absolutely. Uh, right? So yes. they realized that I, had, uh, I wasn't going to just go live in the woods. I was going to actually do something. So they, they thought that's pretty interesting. And then they came to visit. And it was a little bit, it took a while for them to understand it. But, uh, you know, that I wasn't going to go to law school or something like that. So Or be a doctor. Yeah. But when you started the process and the business started to grow, did they see those results as well? In other words, did they oh, see your of success? Course, of course, with great pride, all those things, for right. sure. Did they enjoy the fact that your wines were served at the White House? Yes, yes. I do recall my mother specifically being very, very happy about that. And, that. and I, would take a, I would take a gamble that they probably mentioned that to a lot of their friends, that the wine was... Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, a steady stream of people came to visit, even before we even had an official or formal tasting room, people used to come to visit us. Give because us... we built our facility here, we spent almost two decades without our own winery, traveling from winery to winery, so to speak. And so then in the year 2000, we built our own facility here. Much easier now, isn't it? Yeah, now I'm fully integrated, and now other people come here, and they want me to make wine for them. Ah, there you go. 
Yeah. Well, give us a sense of, before we leave you, give us a sense of your average day. And I know there is no average day because there are so many elements to it. When we were there, you were doing A, B, C, D, and then L and S and T. Yeah. So I get to do a lot of those, a lot of these different things uh, in a small business. That's true. I Lately, I would say I am have evolved where I don't come to work so so early, but I do stay later in the day. So I cross over one group of people and into another group of people, and then at the end of the day, I'm by myself. And I spend some time, as you would imagine, some time in marketing, some time in business management, some time in viticulture, growing grapes, and some, some time in winemaking every day. And my day is typically in three languages, so to speak. It's in English, of course, and it's in Spanish, and it's in Hebrew. So I have these three, you know, that sort of plays on who I'm working with or who I'm talking to. And, um, yeah, I'm busy. And then I take eggs home. Hey, of course. It ke- <laughs> I, take a eggs home. <laughs> I love the eggs. It keeps you sharp as having to communicate in three languages all the time. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, I like it. I've always liked that. <laughs> no, that I've always, yeah. That is a great thing. One thing I want to suggest to you, because you did this, I believe it was last year, and I may be off on my time. COVID throws time off. But it was either last year or the year before that you finally embraced the technology of either Zoom or YouTube, and you did a, you did a presentation online. I, I can't remember when it was. It was either last year or the year before. You and your staff. Right. Well, it was probably since, uh, since the, the onset of COVID. We've done a number, like like a lot of businesses, we've adapted to Zoom, and we've done a number of Zoom what we call, virtual tastings, and we have sort of three or four of us involved in the process so that one person can be out in the vineyard and give us a little shot, and one person can be in the winery and give us a little shot of what's happening there, and one person in the tasting room explaining about the wines, and that's, it's been pretty successful. It hasn't, we haven't done many of late, but earlier on we were doing more of them for different size groups in different places and usually in the middle or late afternoon. So if we were doing it to the East Coast, it would be dinner time. And yeah, it was fun for people. Yeah. And for yeah. club members, I think you should do it once a year at least. So just a that thought. Could, okay. That's a good idea. Yeah. We could we could try to organize that. Yeah. All right. Last question. Are you looking at additional types of wine to produce for the near future, meaning the next several years? So... Yes and no. I, you know, I grow certain grapes, let's say about 50% of the grapes, and those varieties, well, those are what you get. You're, and those are the best ones you, you think you should grow in that ground and, or in that soil and in that area climatically. But then there is the element of marketing, and there, if, there's a, if there's interest and demand for a new kind of wine that you don't grow, then you have to go look for those grapes somewhere else. So um, within reason, I try to stay in touch with what are the current trends. But I can't completely dedicate myself to every year or three years of changing my whole portfolio. So we, did, we made Zinfandels, and then we stopped making it 15 years ago, and then we started again a couple years, uh, just two years ago again. So that kind of thing we've, we've done a few times. We started making some other red wines, and we, started, we didn't make Sauvignon Blanc initially, and now it's one of our most successful wines that we've made every year for the last 20 years. So Things change a little bit, but they don't change too fast because it's based on agriculture. And the seasons, yeah. And, makes and sense. the seasons. So we, we, it doesn't change that awfully fast. We make sparkling wine, like I said, every few years. And we've made some sweeter wines, but generally not. We make mostly dry wines. And 
We're starting to make a few more blends sometimes because people seem to be interested in the, in the synergy that's created when you blend a few different wines together. And that's been interesting. That's a, sort of a newer trend in the last five years. Short last question, and yeah. I know you'll give me a short last answer because it's going to be either yes or no, and you can expand, obviously, on it. But do you still have the same passion for wine as you did when you first started out? Yes, yes, both in the production and in the consumption. Well, that's yeah. a great way to leave it. <laughs> I love the answer. My, my guest has been Ernie Weir, also known as Don Ernesto, who, along with his wife, Erit, own and operate Hagafen Cellars located in the Napa Valley in the heart of California's premier wine grape region. For everything about Hagafen Cellars, go to Hagafen.com and follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And Ernie, thanks for being on the show. It's been a pleasure, Ira. I appreciate it. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.